The little boy went first day of school He got his crayons and he started to draw He put colors all over the paper Four colors was what he saw And the teacher said What you doing, young man? How painting flowers, he said She said it's not the time for art, young man And anyway, flowers are green and red There's a time for everything, young man A way it should be done You got to show concern for everyone else Oh, you're not the only one And she said Flowers for red, young man There's no need to see flowers any other way The way they always happen But the little boy said There are so oh, many colors in the rainbow So many colors in the morning sun So many colors in the flower And I see everyone Virgin Valley Arts Association welcomes you to the Art Box recorded in beautiful Virgin Valley, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, Mesquite, Nevada, and find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com. Hosting today's episode is Rochelle Knight and Steve Dudrow. Let's go have some fun. At the request of our guest, Doug Herbert, We've changed our opening song today to Flowers Are Red, sung by Harry Chapin. Doug says he's always loved the song's message about the importance of the arts and creativity for children. We will use it today, throughout, and end with its final message. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast as much as we did recording it. Thank you. Welcome to the Art Box, and with me today as my co-host is Linda Harris. Linda is Programs Director at Virgin Valley Artists Association. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Steve. Rochelle, if anybody's asking, where's Rochelle? Well, heard from her today. The cruise is leaving Alaska, and she will be home. I think she's probably had a good time and seen puffins and whales and eagles and things like that. So, Linda, how are you today? I'm doing great, Steve. How are you doing? I'm just wonderful. Thank you for coming in. You're welcome. I'm so excited to be co-host of this episode when I found out who you were interviewing today. And with grants. Doug obviously did grants. And what do you do for Virgin Valley Artists Association? You're in charge of grants. I do. I write the grants. I started writing the grants about three years ago as a volunteer. Doug, it was a real learning curve for me to do that, to learn about grants. When I read a little bit about you and your career, I thought this will be really exciting to hear about the art education funding from the other end. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and and your career? Sure. Glad to be with you guys. I'm retired. Have been for, I think it's been four four years, four and a half years. But I had the, as you alluded to, I had the, I have to say, blessed career that involved 30 years at the federal government. Uh, 17 of those, the first 17, were at the National Endowment for the Arts, as you mentioned. And then the last, last 13, starting in 2004, I retired at the end of 2017, was with the U.S. Department of Education. Usually when I tell people that latter part, I say, don't hold that against me. But, <laughs> um, you know, people have. Ronald Reagan tried to get rid of the Department of Ed, and some others have since, but it's still there, and I 
I really believe in it. Had a great career, 13 years there after the arts endowment. And I, I did oversee grant making in both agencies the entire time at the National Endowment for the Arts for 17 years. And then I actually directly only oversaw the budgeting or the grants for arts education, much larger amounts of money at the Department of Ed the last three or four years that I was there when I was not only a special assistant to an assistant deputy secretary, but I also was the head of the arts grant making team for arts education. For that, I'll just say I blithely fell into a career in arts education administration by starting out as managing director of a performing arts center for community arts organizations, Prince George's County, which is contiguous to the District of Columbia, a very large county there. And it was a renovated circa 1947 film cinema that was, I was the first managing director. Again, totally, I can go into more what happened to get me there, but it was just totally serendipitous in many ways and just blind luck to a great extent. And went from there to an organization called the National Committee Arts for the Handicap, very inappropriate title today. Back then, it was acceptable, I guess. Today, it's known as VSA, and it's still a educational affiliate of the John F. Kennedy Center. And I worked there from 1980 to 1986. That's when I started traveling. I didn't travel much at all when I was coming up and even through college. That job opened my eyes to potential for arts education across this country. Uh, I was just so fortunate to go from there to the National Endowment for the Arts, 17 years, and then my last 13 at the Department of Ed. Wow, and I read that your final three years at the Department of Education, you managed more than 25 million annual funding for arts education, is that correct? Yeah, I think it, it was, a, I, you know, I was having trouble when I jotted that down for you guys. I think it was, it might have even been more than 25 million, but it was at wow. least 25 million. It might have been closer to 30. That wow. sounds like a lot until you compare it to, say, Title I funding for underprivileged students in Title I schools around the country, which is, I don't know, up to like 15 billion now. So it's a very small grant program. In terms of the scope of funding at the U.S. Department of Education, but we're fortunate that the Congress and the administrations each four years have continued to support that money in the federal budget. There were times at the Arts Endowment, especially during the mid-90s, during what were commonly referred to as the culture wars, mm -hmm. when the endowment was being threatened with being defunded, to use today's terminology, that we didn't know if we were going to have any funds to give out. Wow, I remember that time. Oh, do you? I, I do. It. Yeah, it was My husband worked for the U.S. Geological Survey, and uh -huh. so that, that was a difficult time for them as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm, we had three children at the time. The youngest, I think Mary Beth, our youngest, was maybe just a toddler. And I would come home and Annie, my wife, would say, they're going to abolish the arts endowment. You're not going to have a job. Mm -hmm. And I had faith in the process, as I'll call it. A piece of history actually is, uh, I forget whether it was 94 or 95, right in that period when they were trying to abolish the endowments, both arts and humanities. They came up with what was commonly referred to as corn for porn. The porn, you may remember, Linda, you remember those days. There was allegations, and I'll emphasize allegations because it was not actual factual assertions that we had funded certain, for some people, pornographic art, particularly Robert Maplethorpe and his photographs and 
another artist named Andre Serrano who did uh, a sculpture that was called Piss Christ. It was a crucifix in the jar of urine. And uh, the fact is that we never funded those grants directly, yet we were charged with that in the media and in the public and had to defend ourselves against those frankly lies that almost led to the abolishment as i mentioned what happened the corn for porn there's an appropriations process annually most people probably have heard it alluded to there's 13 appropriation bills our appropriation came under the department of interior because we were an independent small agency and the closed door discussions that finally led to the continued funding for the arts endowment there was a deal struck that the arts endowment could be funded provided that there would be higher subsidies for corn farmers, <laughs> manufacturers of corn in the Midwest. It was often referred to in Washington as the corn for porn. Wow. I don't know that I remember corn for porn, but I remember, corn for porn. But I remember yeah. that. But hey, it, I think it's it was all... Senator Grassley. What was I think it? It was Senator Grassley, yeah. if I remember correctly, who helped to come up with that deal. He's from Iowa, as you may know, and I think he's the oldest senator in the Senate today. Wow, what a story. I forget who was, I forget who was for the porn. Um, (laughs) And I say that tongue in cheek, because obviously we were not funding porn. That's how it came down. And I think I mentioned to Steve and talking about, you know, what we might discuss during this interview. We're, We're so caught up and wrought up with the misinformation in our society today. And yet that was a prime example of alternative facts and misinformation that yes. was used to try to abolish two independent agencies of the federal government. Yeah, and I don't even think we're in 24 hour news quite yet, were we? When I think about that, it was around 92 that we and the arts education program at the Arts Endowment was, we were just starting to fool around with the internet to create a, a site that just you got decommissioned recently at the Kennedy Center called Arts Edge. No, we weren't carrying around cell phones. The internet was something that only the Department of Defense knew much about. Yeah, what happened was there was still radio. To be frank, there was a particular radio figure named Dr. James Dobson of Focus on the Family. I think it still exists. I don't know if he's still doing his his daily broadcasts. He was among the purveyors of these notions that we were funding pornographic art and that we had pornographers who were on the staff of the National Endowment for the Arts. And it, it was a crazy time. Truth prevailed. The good work of the Arts Endowment as, and you know, then our budget was probably $150 million. It's, it's not even a rounding error in the federal budget. We were fortunate to survive. It was only because of the strength of advocacy throughout this country that led to that behind door compromise. How interesting. What a story. There was actually a time when the, the press was barred from attending the National Council meetings. The National Council is the presidentially appointed advisory body to the chairman of the Arts Endowment. There was an injunction that the media got to allow to be allowed into the council meetings. And at a time we had federal law enforcement officers guarding the National Endowment for the Arts chairman because there were threats on her life. Yeah, it was, oh my. You know, it, it's, it's a little bit of deja vu all over again. It's just, this is exponentially ramped up in what we're experiencing today. Arts education became kind of, how, how shall I put it? It became kind of the feel good argument for keeping an arts endowment. And what happened in that was 
when Jane Alexander came in as chairman of the Arts Endowment, some may remember Jane Alexander, who's still active, I think, in her acting on some things on streaming, but she was a very famous actress, award-winning actress, had done the original production of um, I'll Come Up With It, but man, and she had done, anyway, she was, she had done a number of things for which she had won numerous awards, but she was our chairman under President Bill Clinton. One of the things that she trotted out to say, I know you have some issues with some of the grants we've made to individual artists, even though we didn't make certain grants you thought we made. We do arts education. Arts education was not funded as much as some of the discipline areas, but it was had been a mainstay at the Arts Endowment since its creation in 1965. So the Congress actually got enamored of the idea that we would support arts education, albeit in a limited kind of way monetarily. And they actually created what was called an arts education override. That meant that for every dollar over 175 million would be earmarked for arts education funding only. And wouldn't you know, there was one year, I think it was 95 or 96, where the budget actually exceeded 175 million. It was like 176. So we had this windfall for arts education and then the budget got cut. And oh. stayed below 175 million. I think the the Congress's favoritism toward arts education at the Arts Endowment was short-lived. I mean, it was one year that <laughs> we got this extra money. The Arts Endowment has continued till now to have arts education as a discrete category. I had the pleasure of serving on one of their panels this last year for arts education for professional development and another category that arts education funds at the endowment. Just suffice it to say, it was a tumultuous time because of the good work the endowment did, not the least of which in arts education, the Congress eventually saw the worthiness of it and never never defunded it. I also saw that you worked with Gene Kennedy Smith at one time, one of yeah, Kennedy's, Kennedy's siblings. Um, for those who don't know, Gene Kennedy Smith was the youngest of the Kennedy siblings of Rose and John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Of course, her brother was president. I firmly believe, I don't mean this to be political, I just think it is looking back on history and what could have happened but didn't happen. I think her brother, Robert, would have been president in 1968 had he not been assassinated. So she was... Probably, in my estimation, she was the shy member of the family in that she, her sister, Eunice, people know Eunice Kennedy Shriver for having founded the Special Olympics and done many other great things. Eunice was very, very outgoing, and Jean was kind of the opposite of that. I often refer to her actually as Ambassador Smith because during the Clinton administration, she was ambassador to Ireland. She founded an organization that I referred to earlier, the National Committee Arts for the Handicapped. In 1976, 1976 was the year that the Congress passed the Disabilities Act, and I don't remember the exact act, but it was 94-142, and that was to provide funding for equal opportunities for people with disabilities. She had always had an interest in the arts. I don't know if she was ever really an artist, but she always had an interest in the arts where Eunice's interest was in sports. And she got some folks together that created this nonprofit organization. She also made sure that it was 
an official educational affiliate of the Kennedy Center because she sat on the board of trustees of the Kennedy Center. So I had the good fortune to go there in 1980, four years after it started. I guess two things come to mind. One, as I said earlier, it gave me a tremendous vista of what this country looked like, how it worked in terms of educational systems that differ from state to state, community to community. As I traveled around as head of the Very Special Arts Festival program, I'll never forget the first time I got to travel with her. We were going to the Indianapolis Children's Museum and they were doing a very special arts festival. It's a one day festival for kids with disabilities and their teachers and artists and so on. We went there. I'll tell a quick story. She didn't like to travel overnight. Her preference when she went to the programs was to go in and out in one day. When she got to Indianapolis, we had a great time. They did a wonderful opening ceremony that she spoke at, and we toured all of the different activities. And we went out to the airport, and I was accompanied by her escort for the day, was the president of the Junior League. <laughs> get out to the airport, and it was back when TWA was around. And we get to the gate, and they've announced that the, her flight is canceled. Well, I knew that I had to do something, and here I was, my first time in travel with her, and I was a new person. I think it was like in my first year at the at the National Committee. So I, I kind of gingerly went up to the ticket agent and I said, uh, is there another flight? And he said, no. He said, uh, well, for everybody that's booked on the canceled flight, we'll put them on the first flight in the morning. Well, my staff director had told me she does not stay places overnight. So I went up. He, he had said, I remember now, he said everything was booked for the rest of the evening. And she must have traveled, as I think about it, she must have traveled as just Jean Smith. So I went up to him again, because I knew I had to pull this off somehow. And I said, you have a person on the flight that was canceled. And I really think you need to find her a space on a flight tonight. And he goes, I, he said, I'm sorry, sir. I told you everything is booked completely. There's nothing I can do. I said, well, I said, could you look her up on the manifest? I think it's Jean Smith. And he goes, yes, I see her right here. She's in first class. I said, well, let me explain to you. I work for this organization called the National Green. And I said, and her real, her full name is Jean Kennedy Smith. And literally, Steve and Linda, he started punching the computer <laughs> keyboard. And he said, she has a flight. She has a seat on the nine o'clock flight. <laughs> yeah. That's what the name will do for you. Very good, Doug. And it was, oh, well, well, not me. I didn't do anything. It was her name, you know, they, but because I, I would have had, I probably wouldn't have had a job had she not gotten on that flight. <laughs> well, you yes. did a good job with that. Yeah, you saved a number of things, uh, huh? Well, she, you know, the, I, I, I often say to people, having worked with her for those six years, and I didn't work directly for her, I wanna be clear about that. She would come to Washington from New York for board meetings and so on. And I learned that when you work with her and the Kennedys, I'll put it more generally, you have to realize two things. No does not exist in their vocabulary and the impossible should simply take longer. And if you understand those two things, you'll get along famously. <laughs> I'll never forget one other quick story. Somebody, the staff director came to me and said, Ambassador, she was an ambassador, then, but Mrs. Smith is going to be speaking at a junior league national conference in, I think it was Cincinnati. 
in, I don't know, four or six months or something. She's going to need to, you know, talk about the very special arts festival program there. And I said, there isn't one. And he said, there will be by the time she speaks. <laughs> oh, my. And the next thing I know, literally, folks, I got a call shortly after that from the chief of staff to the mayor of Cincinnati asking me how to create a program. Really? Yeah. And they had a program by the time she spoke. That's amazing. You talked a little bit about arts and education, and I'm coming with a background as a mathematics teacher. I can remember, and I was in rural Missouri, so I remember when we seemed to have less money for a particular year, we'd all have to look at what programs would need to be cut. And I will tell you, usually they kept the math programs. I thought your thoughts about art education for every child were significant. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that? There's so much to be said. I mean, we don't have the time in this podcast to talk about all the reasons why the arts are essential, uh, important, equal to the other core subjects, etc., whatever the terminology has been over the course of 30 or 40 years that, that arts education advocates have been fighting this battle. You have to, I think you have to look at the arc of time where we go back to 19, I guess it was around 1972, that there was a report called A Nation at Risk from the U.S. Department of Education. The commissioner then was Terrell Bell. And it was the specially commissioned report on what to do to have students in America achieving at the same level as other countries. So it came out with, as would rightfully be determined, that the kids in America were not doing as well as kids in China and Japan and other places in math and, and uh, science. The, the report basically said we have to get back to the basics. I think that was the, when the basics was used as the key term. And the arts literally were never mentioned in that entire report. When that report became the blueprint, if you will, even though we don't have a national curriculum, we still pay a lot of attention to those kinds of analyses of what's right and what's wrong with our schools when it comes from the Department of Ed and the Special Commission, et cetera. We've been fighting that battle in kind of ebbs and flows of progress since the 1970s, early 70s. I wrote an article, I guess it was, it's been more than 15 years ago, I did an article for the National School Boards Association on this very issue of how do we finally make convincing case that changes arts education policy to value it like it should be. And I had, they used, uh, I used the depiction of Sisyphus, who has the, you know, the, the figure who pushes the large rock up the hill. And I use that as the metaphor because we would make progress, as I saw it since the 70s, and I got really involved in the 80s in arts education policy. And yet the rock oftentimes would come back down on us and we just keep pushing that rock up the hill. There's so many arguments to be made from just the standpoint, especially today, you know, today we're talking a lot about social emotional skills and the social emotional welfare of our kids. That involves things like compassion and empathy and self-image and self-agency. And all of those things, I, I could bring you proof if I had to, that the arts bolster those things. In some ways, the arts uniquely bolster things like compassion and agency and so on. 
And yet it's hard to get away from now contemporarily, you probably saw the latest national report card, National Assessment for Educational Progress called the Nation's Report Card. This very dark picture that was painted of math and reading. These past two and a half years of COVID, kids have really regressed. Yes. And so now, rightfully, we're going to have to do things to catch them up. And my fear contemporarily is that the arts will get jettisoned in favor of more seat time uh, and tutoring time spent on math and reading. I had to come up with many arguments over the years. I tried always to base them on facts and evidence evidence coming from research that was being done in classrooms and schools and school systems where people were tracking, if you will, the difference that the arts made when they were present in schools in terms of school, kids attending schools, kids graduating from high school, kids going on to college at higher numbers when they had the arts and so on. And yet, again, it's hard to get school boards to say, Sure, we're going to hire specialists in visual art, music, dance, and theater, and ideally you'd have a specialist in creative media arts. But the reality is when budgets have to be pared down or the bottom line has to be otherwise met with budgets, it's oftentimes the specialists in visual art and music who remain, but there's either no hiring or there's no potential hiring for the specialists that we'd also like to see in, say, dance and theater. I don't know if that answers it completely, Linda. I think that the field of arts education, with the help of something called the Arts Education Partnership, has been doing a great job for 25 years now, and actually 26 years since the AEP was, I call it the AEP, was created, of having a clearinghouse of research-based evidence through research studies called Arts Ed Search. People should go to that and look up the evidence and studies that can be searched by art discipline, by the arts impact on students versus their impact on teachers versus their impact on school settings and so on. The evidence is increasingly there. It's getting people who oversee those state and local budgets to value the arts alongside math and reading and science and history. Right. Well, it's it's good that they have the um, data and facts to support those those decisions. I've noticed also on a personal level that coming from the perspective of a former math teacher, there's so much problem solving and creative thinking involved in the arts. So Mm -hmm. I can see where that's a real asset to somebody graduating from high school and going on to a higher level of education. I think the key word there is creativity. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I I remember distinctly, I'd mentioned the National Council of the Arts. The other thing that I I just look back on and have to pinch myself, the National Council of the Arts was a bot, it is still a body of, I think it's about 25 citizens who are appointed by the president. And I'll never forget for doing one period of the time I was in those 17 years at the Arts Endowment, Arthur Mitchell, who was the Arts District Director of the Dance Theater of Harlem, was a member of the National Council. And I remember him, we were talking about that very issue, arts education instills creativity. And he said, you know, he said, the way I see it, when a young child in New York City or any urban center of this country decides that he's going to stick up the local grocery store, 
he goes through a creative act to figure out how he's going to do that. And so why aren't we channeling that same creativity in those children through the arts so that what they're using that creative impulse for is positive and not negative. And the way to do that is to give them more opportunities to exercise that inherent creativity that they're going to find an outlet for one way or the other. It's just how do you channel it into things that are positive and sanguine. Those kind of comments stayed with me when I heard them from leaders like that in the arts field who were on the National Council. That makes a lot of sense. The other thing I, the other thing I you know, I think people, I guess the thing that I feel fortunate to have understood once I got in the venue of the Arts Endowment and the Department of Ed was the, the power of the bully pulpit. I hear this from time to time, it's a long-standing term about people who have a figure who or a figurehead and they can move public discourse and public policy by the bully pulpit. One of the things that I tried to do, especially when I was at the Department of Ed as a special assistant to the secretary, when it was Secretary Rod Page, initially in 2004 to 2005, and then I was the special assistant to people who were secretary, deputy secretaries or assistant deputy secretaries, whatever, they had so many long titles. I tried as hard as I could to find those moments in time when I could petition in a manner of speaking, the people around the secretary to say something about arts education relative to other things or unto itself. Uh, a good for instance is, I can't remember the year exactly, but it was sometime probably in the 2014 or so era when President Obama was had his administration and Ar Arnie Duncan was the Secretary of Education. We had had a national assessment of educational progress, that nation's report card that I just referred to that we've heard those dire statistics about math and reading. We had a national assessment of educational improvement in the arts, yet it was had been the historical norm, I guess you would call it, that the secretary would never say anything about the results of the NAEP, called the NAEP assessment. He would leave it to the commissioner of education statistics who was independent of the secretary, didn't come under the secretary's supervision, so to speak. And yet I, I made the case that the secretary should make a statement separate from the commissioner's revealing of the findings of that national assessment on arts education because I felt it was so important to have the voice of the secretary reinforced that this is as important as the national assessments in math and reading and science. And Secretary Duncan did it. It was those kinds of things that I think I was fortunate to be in a place as a special assistant. And there hasn't, I, I'm, I'm chagrined to say that my position was not further occupied after I left at the end of 2017, it still isn't today. But that special assistant role gave me that entree to the secretary's bully pulpit. I believe that although it didn't change things miraculously, I think it added to the public discussion of things like that national assessment. We had the secretary also do a press conference when we had, I guess it was in 2018, I think it was, or no, 2000, in 2015 or 16, around that same time, we did a 
a survey of the conditions of arts education in a sample of national sample of schools across the country. And the secretary held a press conference to reveal those findings. So there are things that kind of take for granted when you see a press conference, but that doesn't happen automatically. It takes staff work around the leader that has the belief pulpit to convince them that it's worth their time and effort. And it's worth the power of the bully pulpit to say something like, this is an arts education development that the country should pay attention to. I remember as a teacher several years back, we had a time where, for example, all the math teachers would get together and decide what their curriculum would be for the year. Then at, right. at, and the art teachers would do the same. And then at some point mm-hmm. it became much more of a, a national objective, which I thought was good for children moving from district to district and state to state, where, for example, all the mm-hmm. seventh grade math teachers would focus on the main goals and objectives. I also noticed the art teachers did that as well. Can you explain a little bit about how those goals and objectives came about for each grade level? I guess what we're talking about, although I think the emphasis or attention to them has waned a bit, the, the voluntary national standards. Yes, in the our, standards. In, in mm-hmm. the different subjects, yeah. It was in 1992, I think. There was talk about having, because the curricula were so different across states and communities, there was this idea that if we're ever going to have a rising tide for all students across the country we need to have some sort of nationally accepted expectations, let's call it, that right. became goals. And so what happened was, as I think about it, and actually I remember writing about this in a piece I did for the Arts Education Partnership on this 25th anniversary, President George H.W. Bush convened a bunch of leaders at Charlottesville, close to the end of his first four, his only four-year term. They came to together and they decided there should be national education goals. And there is actually a codified set of national education goals that got promoted by the White House, by the George H.W. Bush White House, after that Charlottesville summit. It's called the summit. President, well, then Governor Bill Clinton was one of the governors who attended the summit. What happened when, this is the true story, if you'll just bear with me, I think it's worth telling. The goals, though, did not include the arts. And there was a particular goal that had to do with academic achievement. It was goal number three. And it said that uh, students in America would be the first in the world in terms of their achievement in math and science and reading. And um, I think history might have been in there, but the arts were not included. And there was a groundswell of advocacy. From that, there, there was a goal, there was a uh, goals, yeah, a National Education Goals Commission, and it was headed by Governor Roy Romer of Colorado at that time. And the commission with Governor Romer went around the country and did five or six regional forums where people could come and testify about the then draft art, uh, ed, National Education Goals. I was able not the only one, but I was able with a a network of arts education managers in the state arts agencies around the country to get the word out through those arts education managers and state arts councils to arts education advocates in their states 
to attend, sign up and speak at these six, five or six regional forums. I'll never forget, uh, we got reports in after the first couple of forums, and there were so many people signed up to speak about the arts in the National Education Goals that at, at the second regional meeting, Governor Romer actually said words to the effect, listen, if you're here signed up to speak about the arts, I've gotten the message, you don't need to speak. And I'll never forget, this is a true story. The chairman of the Arts Endowment at that time was a gentleman named John Fronmeyer. I talked to the chairman about the fact that this hearing was going to be held in Annapolis, Maryland, the capital of Maryland. John said, I want to testify. And I said, okay. So I got him signed up to testify. And I'll never forget, this is a true story. I don't know that the White House was terribly happy that, you know, the people were taking issue with the national education goal that said that there should be, you know, achievement in math and science, being not the arts. So I don't know that I have no idea that they were opposed to that, but I can just tell you when John Fronmeyer got up and testified before the commission, the head of Domestic Policy Council, and I'll think of his name in a moment, of the White House was sitting with Governor Romer and some of the other commission members. And I'll never forget the look that he gave John Fronmeyer for testifying as the president's National Endowment for the Arts chair. Uh, I, I can't read it entirely, and I can't profess that it was extra, that what I'm saying is accurate, but I, I don't think he was really happy <laughs> that John was there testifying against what the president and the uh, people at the summit had come up with as the number goal, goal number three. I give John a lot of credit, John Frommeyer, for having that conviction to arts education, and it was because of John, Fron John Frommeyer that the arts endowment was able to fund most of the costs of the first national assessment in arts education that was done in the 90s uh, by putting up money from the arts endowment that the budget of the national assessment did not have, but was willing to take in an interagency transfer from the arts endowment to be able to begin the process of having a national assessment in the arts. It, it's people like John Fronmeyer and others that I've mentioned, Arnie Duncan in those leadership positions that have used, if you go back to my, the insight that I got about the, the role and the power of the bully pulpit, that I feel fortunate once they were given evidence, if you will, of why arts education was so important for them to speak out about among so many other things that were national priorities for them, that they made a difference in that pushing that big rock up that steep hill. That's really interesting and inspiring. You know, yeah, I mean, leadership, you know, leadership comes and goes. And so when leadership, in my view, from my years at both agencies, when leadership was receptive, uh, I didn't hesitate to do whatever I could to make the case to them that they needed to use that bully pulpit. You know what? This is so interesting. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> I I have one uh -huh. one more uh, general question before I'd really like to hear uh -huh. a little bit more about your own art since you retired. But okay. um, coming from the position of a grant writer for the Virgin Valley Artists Association, how does the money, how is it decided, for example, that Nevada Arts Council gets 
so much um, money and maybe Arizona gets a different amount? Or do they do all the states sure. get the same amount? Well, yeah, let me explain it two ways, Linda. So for, I think it's 40% of the endowments funds has been this way for decades, and I think it's still 40%. 40% is earmarked, if you will, in the endowments budget for the state arts agencies. And then, um, you know, I wish I had boned up on this. I didn't. The 40% is then divided up. I think it's by population, but don't quote me on that. Okay. That but that money, sense. so unless the state itself, unless the state itself through its legislature and governor are not providing funds for that state arts council, those monies automatically flow that 40%, their share of that 40%. Okay. And that's why there has been, you know, there's been cases, I think my own now home state of Arizona for the last three years actually threatened to defund at the state level, the state arts commission here in Arizona. And really? one of the things that arts advocates are able to threaten in a situation like that is if you do that legislature, we're not going to get our share of that 40% of the funds from the arts endowment. Right. And that's true. And so that's something that keeps the legislatures thinking twice about defunding their state arts commissions or arts councils. The other thing that states can do is in many categories of the endowment beyond those state set-asides, if you will, they can apply for the funding just the way, the same way the local arts council or any 501c3 organization can. School districts, for that matter, when it comes to arts education, can apply. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, good to know. And then what's interesting about the peer process is then, and, and I think this is still true, one of the problem is there's always more, there's always fewer funds than there are requested dollars from the, the aggregate of the applicants right. once they're, you know, screened to be eligible. Oftentimes what happens, and you ha I can't speak to all the programs, but oftentimes what we would do at the Arts Endowment is we would have to give people We'd fund maybe 50 out of 150 applications, and they would still only get 50 or 60 or 75 percent of their requested amount, and then they'd have to do a revised scope of work and revised budget. I, you know, the interesting thing is, I I don't I like to think that I could write a really good grant application, having reviewed grant applications. Oh, I bet you years, could. <laughs> but I, well, you know, I I should test myself now that I'm beyond my two. You know, for two years. After you leave federal service, you can't be part of any entity that's applying for any money. Maybe if somebody pressed me into service, maybe I'd give it a shot. I know I don't know. I think I think being able to review them is probably a different skill set than writing them. I don't know. Hey, Linda's looking for an assistant. <laughs> yeah, I am. You know, the thing I will say, the thing I will say uh, real quickly, and, and unfortunately, because of technology, it no longer is. For many, many years until I'd say maybe 10 years ago, maybe a few less than 10 years ago, all of these panels that we would have at the Arts Endowment were in person. They oh. weren't done by Zoom and by telecommunications. They were in person. Categories that we had in arts education would typically keep a group of 10 or 12 persons as the panel in Washington for five days. Oh my, it was wow. such a tremendous professional development experience for both the staff of the Arts Endowment. We would learn so much from these folks as experts in the field. And many, and to a person, they would always say that they walked away 
with lots of new knowledge from their peers uh, in those panels. Oh, I'm sure. And now today, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, maybe people don't like traveling to Washington and all that. Um, it's all done by Zoom. I was fortunate to be able to watch the peer panel when a recent grant that I submitted was discussed along with other grants for Nevada Arts Council. And I found it oh, to good. be very yeah. interesting should do that. and informative. Yeah. Yes, yes. There are so many colors in the rainbow, so many colors in the morning sun. So you're retired now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and do some of your own art. Would you like to tell us yeah. a little bit about that? Well, I know, I know yeah, he's chomping so at the really... bit to tell us about this. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because I, I was not a very good artist. I was a, a student art. I often, I often admit that when I played in the marching band at High Point High School, I was, I wasn't the only one. Because, but I, I couldn't play and march at the same time. And I wasn't the only one, as I was about to say, because somehow when we would get in formation, the sound would crescendo. And whenever we marched, it would be diminished. So I wasn't the only one who couldn't play and march at the same time. I, um, you know what? I never what knew happened? that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, what is it? Rubbing your belly in your head at the, whatever. But so what happened was I went to college, University of Maryland, and I went primarily because two reasons. One, I was expected to go because I would be the first one on either side of the family to go to college. And so it was incumbent upon me to go to college. I matriculated to University of Maryland in 1967, which was in the thick of the Vietnam War. For uh, people back then, at 18, you had two alternatives. And then my draft number was 59, if people remember the draft. Oh, my gosh. And 59 was, oh, yeah. So anyway, so I went, and I didn't know why I was there other than those two reasons. And so I got to my junior year, and I was a general studies major, which they allowed back then. And so I got to uh, registration for the first semester of my junior year, and I had to declare a major. And I didn't know. Somebody looked at my transcripts, and they said, you've done really well in English. Do you like English? And I said, well, yeah, because normally there's essay questions rather than multiple, multiple choice. And I, you know, I like that. Uh-huh. And they said, OK, then you're an English major. <laughs> so I became an English major, graduated, needed a job. And, you know, as an English major, I could either supersize drinks or ask if you wanted, you know, a side of fries. I had a friend who was a zoning inspector in that same Prince George's County where the public playhouse that I managed when it opened was. And so I took this job as a zoning inspector. It was, you know, I had I had money. I had I, I, I got involved in community theater. And actually, I'll pull a thread through here in a minute about what I ended up doing at the federal level. Got in this community theater, and I found that I didn't like memorizing lines, and I didn't like blowing my entrances. But I also noticed when I was in a couple of plays, when I did do the acting part of it, that there were more people on the stage than there were in the audience. So I said, uh, gee, maybe somebody should try doing publicity. And they said, well, how about you? And so I took it on as opposed to the acting. And to make a long story short, I found that I really liked working behind the scenes, propping, not propping up, supporting, enabling the people who did the art. That led me to that job at the, what's called the Public Playhouse, is the name of that community theater building. There I did the same thing, except I got paid 
money for it as opposed to being a zoning inspector. And I did the same thing when I went to the very special arts festival program. I just, I literally fell into this opportunity that started with thinking, how do you put more people in seats? (laughs) I just feel so fortunate and blessed, as I said at the beginning of the conversation, to have never had any design to do what I did for 40 some years, maybe 50. I just figured out, oh, people who are creative need somebody that helps them have those opportunities. All the years that I did all this arts administration and grant making and so on, I always had an excuse for not doing my own art. And my own art, as much as it was at that point, was music. And I did play in a praise band at one of the Methodist churches we were at for a number of years and so on. But I never was never was stellar. And now that I'm retired, I got really interested in glass blowing. And to make a long story short, I guess it was a year ago, I took a glass blowing class at a place called the Melting Point in Sedona. I, I don't need many reasons to drive to Sedona from Flagstaff. It's just absolutely gorgeous there. I found that it was just a very inaccessible art form. There's only a few places that have the, the, the workshops and the furnaces. Uh, much less the instructors for glass blowing. I decided to take pottery. And so I've taken the first five or six week class in pottery at the Sedona Art Center. And it's working on the wheel. So I'm going back. Actually, I took a hiatus for a six week period of classes and I'm starting back next Wednesday, which I'm happy to say to go to Wednesday classes, three hours of Wednesday and then open studio is available to you as a class participant and I'm going to take my next six weeks continue it and my wife Annie keeps saying to me please stop bringing all these bowls home we only have so many people to give Christmas gifts to send these bowls to you can send them to Steve and me yeah I'm going to move from bowls to vases I think um, so that we have something uh, different to send out at Christmas than just bowls. The other thing I'm really interested in is hand building. And there is a, a really super hand building artist instructor at Sedona Art Center. And I think after I take another six weeks or so with the wheel, uh, I think I might switch over just for some variety to the hand building. I took one hand building pottery class just so that I could understand it a little bit more. Uh-huh. Um, can you explain to our listeners the difference between hand building and the wheel? Yeah, let me try and then you, you chime in. Most people think of pottery as bowls, mugs, vases, things that are done on the pottery wheel with water. And so what you're doing is molding that clay. And, you know, you, Linda, probably know when I say, you know, the key thing is the centering, uh, that you got to get the centering down before you can do anything on the wheel. Right. The hand building is, and I've only observed this a little bit, so I'm anxious to actually experience it. You actually are putting the clay out in a sheet, and then you're flattening it, and then you're cutting it into shapes that you want like if you're using three pounds of clay on the wheel you might have a certain number of square inches of clay that you are envisioning turning into a a sculptured base or whatever and so i'm interested in that because it's a lot i've heard i don't know i've heard some people say i just don't like working on the wheel 
they don't have the patience for it or I don't know what it is, but they like the hand building as something that's just very different in working with the clay than being on the wheel. So far, I kind of like the wheel as long as I can get the clay centered <laughs> so that I can actually make something. You know? But I think the key thing for me has been having just a really great instructor. His name is Dennis Ott, and he's been, he's been doing pottery clay for 35 years, and he's taught for 25 of those. Those good so instructors make... for me has been... His name is Dennis Ott at the Sedona Art Center. He's just a great guy and uh, really good, literally, literally hands-on <laughs> uh, instructor who, um, you know, he's, he's got in the studio, we'll have probably 12 students at any one time at various levels of proficiency. And yet he somehow intuitively manages to come around, you know, at the time you need him to correct something you've done wrong. <laughs> or just you know make sure that you're getting to the next step in the process so doug how, how many wheels do they have there uh um i'm guess I'm, i'd say 20. i'd say 20. we're both linda and i are both looking at each other saying wow, wow i think yeah. our center has yeah, is a, there three or four yeah. yeah three or four. Oh yeah we have 20 and and i forget the you know the different kilns that he's and, and of course, he's grown the program over the years. I think he's been the longest standing instructor there at 25 years. And it's in an old barn. If you're ever in Sedona, you got to check out the Sedona Art Center. Yeah, it's a great, great place. Do you have a favorite piece that you've made so far? Oh, <laughs> you know, the, I sent one to my daughter in Vermont that I really liked. I'd seen, it's a little bowl, of course, but I had done it with, I did it in black. And then I had seen another piece there as an example where they had the robin's egg blue inside, but it was oh. kind of, so it wasn't completely blue. It was like a blue overlay of the black. And so I asked Dennis to tell me how to do that. And he guided me through the process with the two glazes, first the black and then the robin's egg. And with the robin's egg blue, I actually had, you actually had to put the glaze in and then you kind of swirled it and then you poured it and then you sucked with a, with a suction thing, you sucked all the extra in the bowl out. And then when it, when it was fired, you had this kind of overlay effect of the robin's egg blue on the black. And I really enjoyed that. I think, I think what I enjoy the most so far is the glazing. Ah. You know, I think that's the, the, the really exciting part because you don't know quite what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, you're you're going to share a picture of that with us? I can, yeah. I, well, I, if I get married back to photograph it for me. Yeah, she, she has it in Vermont. And I don't see Yeah, I, 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 the glazing to me, and Linda, you've experienced this too, apparently. It looks so different once it's fired. You can't think you, can't think you know what it's going to look like after you dip it because it, it just comes out looking much brighter, first of all, than that matte kind of look that you get when you when you just have the glaze just dry. And I, I find that's an exciting part of it. Doug, my experience with that kind of art form was more as a porcelain arts, um, oh, okay. porcelain artist. So I had mm -hmm. my own kiln in my backyard, but I totally get yeah. what you mean. Um, and you really had to learn how to paint layers, otherwise you could get mud very quickly. 
but right. you you never you never uh, know exactly how it will turn out. But it was always fun to go out in the kiln and see what I what I had. Yeah, that's the exciting part. You know, when uh, because I'm you know, an hour away from the art center, so I have to make a point of going down once the glazing has happened, and I always look forward to it because it's uh, it's a surprise you know sure and so far they've been pleasant surprises and it, it, and as the thing that dennis has say, keeps saying to me and the other students is don't strive for perfect just be satisfied with imperfectly perfect <laughs> oh that's great and so i've been getting i'm trying to understand that yes i want this to look a certain way but it doesn't always happen on the wheel. And so you get it as close as you can and you accept imperfectly perfect. I'm sure your background with your work in the arts education department has helped you in with your art that you're doing right now with the pottery. As far as yeah, um, like which rules to break. Yeah, I think the other thing, it gives me a tremendously more, gives me tremendous more insight an appreciation for those people that I tried to be the enabler of, you know what I mean? Right. Um, when I think about the way Dennis, the way I appreciate so much how Dennis interacts with me as a student, I think about the work that these arts educators do, oftentimes under not the best circumstances mm -hmm. in terms of their equipment, like, you know, having the equipment like Sedona Art Center. Yeah, so it gives me a much greater appreciation for the people whose work and efforts I tried to support as best I could for all those years. Sure. Do you have a particular style? Or oh, do I don't think so. Not yet. <laughs> where do you get your ideas? You know, ideas? right now, I'm just... Well, you know, a lot of it right now is, again, and, you know, this is kind of inside baseball, to use a different metaphor for people who don't understand pottery and using the wheel, it, you know, you have to get the basics down first. Just that ability to center the clay and then to bring it up to the point where, you know, where you're, you're using your index fingers on either side to bring those walls up. You're drawing up those walls. A lot of that is you know, like anything, it's trial and error. And luckily, Dennis is standing by so that when I bring the walls up and the, and it gets out of center and, you know, you can see it kind of going unsymmetrically round on the wheel, he can come over and help me to get that wall back into symmetry, I guess is the, the term. Right now, I'm just mainly trying to figure out the basic. So the basics oftentimes to get the basics down, you are building walls of more than like two or three inches, right? Sure. I want to get to the point where I can build a wall up to six inches and make a vase, but I'll get there. It's just getting the basics under my belt first and then working toward things that more could be more of a vision. Sure. I had one in, inadvertent mistake. So I had actually done a plate. Uh, hey, let me interrupt. So proud. Uh, 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 uh. There's no such thing as a mistake, from what I'm oh, told. Well, it's okay. an, op so was, it's was, an opportunity. It's, there you go. There you go. And and I had made this plate, and I had been saying, I want to do a plate. I'm, just, I'm tired of doing bowls. So I had actually pulled the clay out, out, you know, like maybe 10-inch diameter, really, and I got it nice and thin, which is part of what you're after, so you don't have these thick pieces of pottery. And... 
I was ready to take the plate, you know, that the, the clay sits on off the wheel. My foot inadvertently hit the pedal oh. for the wheel motor. The thing turned and just went all over the place, completely lost it. <laughs> and so I learned, don't put your foot anywhere near the pedal when you're ready to pull the, the piece off of the, off the, the wheel. <laughs> so something as crazy as, you know, I didn't do anything intentionally. I just had an accident. Okay. So, so I don't keep, yeah. So, so, yeah. so much for my opportunity analogy. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I'm going to go back starting next Wednesday and see how I can take it further. And, and Linda try to, come up with some creative ideas as opposed to making bowls. <laughs> I think that sounds wonderful. And I look forward to seeing the picture of some of your work. Yeah, I'll send a, I'll send some photos. So I'll get Mary got to send one of the ones with the rosé blue. Hey, Doug, so can I go back just a little bit? Um, I think, yeah. I think I heard you say that you started your artistic PR career with the Adelphians. Yeah. You want to tell us that yeah. story? <laughs> well, yeah. I think what C is referring to is I shared with him before. Well, after I decided, well, I did, this acting thing is not for me, and we need to put people in C. We had a, had a guy, we, we would have these directors who would come and pitch a, show, uh, a production, and then they would direct it. So um, the story goes that I have this self-appointed publicity director, no pay or anything, you know, and uh, and I, I was at the time I was back at the University of Maryland doing a part time degree program in journalism. And I was trying to go toward broadcast journalism. And so and that and so what happened was so there was a guy named Hap Erstein. If you look Hap up on Google, you'll find I think he still is the theater critic for uh, a major paper in Miami or Palm Beach. But at the time, Hap was the public affairs director, title something like that, for the National Electrical Contractors Association. And he had done theater in college, but he had gone into the trade industry associations and was doing, so he came to do a production. And so he pitched to us doing a show called The Subject Was Roses. Can't remember the playwright, but it was a Tony Award-winning show on Broadway back in the 50s, I think. Maybe, maybe late 50s anyway and it was uh martin sheen uh everybody knows him now from frank and gracie martin sheen was the son and the parents the father and mother were jack albertson and patricia neal had my meeting with hap months and months before we were going to actually do the subject with roses i think it was a spring production and i met with him and we didn't know each other and he said so you're the publicity director. What do you have in mind for publicity for the subject was real? So I said, well, I said, Hap, I've done some research and I found that it was a Tony award-winning play and Jack Albertson and Patricia Neal. And, and, I, and by that, at that time, Martin Sheen had not done Apocalypse Now, so he wasn't quite the household word that the other two were. And I said, so I think what I want to do is I want to get Jack Albertson and Patricia Neal to do radio PSAs for us. And there was this pregnant pause, and Half looked at me and he said, um, have you thought about flyers at the grocery store <laughs> checkout counters? And I said, oh, Half, I said, I said, Half, I know, I know it sounds crazy, but 
I really think we could get them to do it. And I will get the flyers done, though. Don't worry, I'll get the flyers done. At the time, I remember I said I was a zoning inspector, right? Nobody can can go after me for this because it's been more than the statute of limitation years. So I thought to myself, well, how would you get a hold of a Jack Albertson and Patricia Neal? Well, my first logical thought was they'd be members of the unions, either Screen Actors Guild or Actors' Equity. And remember, there's no computers. This is 1970, 1972 or something like that. I, I... I found out that Jack Albertson, who their man, who their union, I found out who their managers were. That's what it was, and their agents. And the agent for Patricia Neal was Irving Lazar. He was widely known as Irving Swifty Lazar. I'm not sure why Swifty, but that was his nickname. I remember letters? Remember when we used to write letters? So yes. I actually <laughs> typed out a letter. Typed out a letter. Uh, I had a phone. I made long distance phone calls at the county zoning inspector's desk. I admit to that. I probably used the selectric typewriter to type out the letters. Wrote a letter to his, to Irving Lazar in San Francisco, and I actually got a call from his office. And uh, I remember them saying, "Oh, Mr. Lazar is um, you know wants wants to talk to you." And I talked to Irving Lazar, and he said, "Well, you know, Patricia." would probably love to do this. She loved that play, and uh, but she's had a stroke and she's recuperating from it in England. And so we, you know, po- couldn't possibly. I remember distinctly, Hap and I had a check-in and uh, I said, well, Hap, I have some bad news and some good news. And he goes, okay, what's the bad news? And I said, well, the bad news is that Patricia Neal can't do it. She had a stroke, blah, 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 blah. And he said, well, how do you know that? And I said, I talked to her agent. And he said, who was that? And I said, Irving Lazar. And he goes, you talked to Irving Lazar? I said, yeah, just the other day we had a really nice conversation and he was very sorry that she couldn't do it. And he goes, oh, okay, well, what's the good news? And I said, well, the good news is that Jack Jack Albertson's agent passed on my letter to his manager and I should be getting a call or I'll be able to call the manager shortly and see what he could do. He goes, okay, well, let me know. And how are the flyers going, you know? <laughs> so I t- I'll never forget, I think I told Steve this story. I-, I called the manager and he said, hey, I showed Jack your letter on the set today at the time he was doing Chico and the Man on one of the major networks. And he said, here's Jack's home number. Give him a, about an hour to get home from the set and give him a call. Oh it my was gosh. the longest hour of my life. I sat there staring at the phone, waiting for the hour to pass. Fortunately, as I was saying, I, I was doing a graduate work and I was at the I was doing a course that involved being able to get into the radio station on the University of Maryland campus. I knew that I could tape him saying the PSA directly from a recorder to, or directly from the phone to a a high quality tape recorder. I called him, I I guess I expected a butler to answer or something. And it was that, if you know Jack Alberts' voice, it's this gravelly kind of baritone. Price Waterhouse and the winner for the supporting award. Jack Albertson, the subject of Rosa. So we ended up talking about the subject was roses and the sunshine boys that he had been on and Broadway and in the movies and all these things. And finally, after, I don't know, 
15 or 20 minutes or something. He said, isn't there something you want me to do? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> to make a long story short, he said, sure, I'll do that. He said, you know, so we set a time for me to call him. And, and uh, we agreed that I would come up with a script. Went to the radio studio whenever it was shortly after that. Called him and I read out. I'll never forget the words were, hi, this is Jack Albertson in Hollywood. I've started many stage and screen productions in my career as an actor, but my favorite will always be The Subject Was Roses. Here's someone, and my good friends, the Adelphians Community Theater, are doing the show in your area. Here's someone to give you the details. And there was, you know, then the live tag for the radio announcer. He wrote it down, and he did it. And I wasn't happy with it. And oh, my gosh. I was tired. <laughs> I don't know if he was tired or what. He said, how's that? And I said, well, Mr. Albertson, could we do it once more with a little more feeling? No, that's <laughs> not true. Really? Oh, it is true. I have oh, my tape. gosh. Actually, I'm sitting here. I actually still have, I still have the cassette tape from November 13th of 1974. Oh, it's my. It's sitting here on my desk. I remember distinctly we did three takes. Finally got what I wanted. And we, I remember getting it on some of the radio stations. Two things happened after that that are funny. I went to HAP on opening night, and the green room, because we, wor we worked in a cafeteria of a junior high school, the green room was the kitchen. I walked into the green room, which wasn't green, it was stainless steel. I said, HAP, I know you're giving final notes and everything, so I thought, I have a little something for you in the cast if you would let me. And he goes, well, sure, what is it? And so I turned on the tape recorder, and it was, hi, this is Jack Albertson. I just want to say break a leg to Dottie and Lou and whoever else was in the cast. And he reminisced for a minute or two about when he was in The Subject with Roses on Broadway. <laughs> and oh Hap was just completely blown away. So then at the cast party that night or one of the nights when the show ran, we actually played the tape for everybody to hear where you hear me saying, well, Mr. Albertson, that was pretty good, but can we do it once more with more feeling? <laughs> and Hap, who was Jewish, said, you have more chutzpah than anybody I know. And I said, well, you know, what was I going to do? I'd spent all that time and effort on the county's time, and I wasn't going to settle for mediocrity. That's amazing. That's, I, <laughs> Steve, wouldn't you love to see what was in that letter that got everybody to call him back? <laughs> that was well, you the... know, and, and some of that, you know, some of that, honestly, and you, this doesn't have to be in the, in the podcast. You know, I often look back on getting an English degree and say to myself, you know, that put me in really good stead. Right. I, I don't, I don't regret it at all. I had no idea why I was doing it at the time, but it gave me good communication skills. Mm -hmm. It gave me a good vocabulary. I don't discount that at all as my starting point because I, I think I rely a lot on, and then the other thing was taking classes in journalism. Where I really had to learn how to ex write expository. I had to really craft expository writing. And today, till today, I can do a great expository writing. I cannot write fiction, couldn't begin to do creative writing, but I can do one hell of a job with expository writing. Yeah, well, there's, there's that creativity thing. Yeah. I think it's that, Steve, and I think it's, I think it's, again, 
it's the creativity, but it's also honing those skills of writing and editing that you have to concentrate on just like you do in the other skill area. And today I'm one, I'm on an HOA board and I'm the one who probably is the most prolific in terms of emails. I do the flyers. I do the newsletter. <laughs> the newsletters are actually a little bit of a creative outlet for me every three months because I enjoy doing things that are graphic. I learned graphic design by the seat of my pants years ago. Doug, you're welcome to come here and, and do graphic design for us. <laughs> and and be, no, that, and be Linda's I, assistant. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 I'm not saying you should hire me as a consultant, but I've thought about consulting. But, you know, it's oh. interesting. I thought I was going to write a history or a, a memento or a, or a memoir, whatever you would call it, about all the things that I learned and did arts education policy-wise all those years, right? I remember a a really well-respected member of the music educators group said to me at a farewell party when I retired, he said, you know, Doug, if you don't do something within the first 12 months, you won't do it. And he was right. It's been 48 months and I haven't done it. And I'm getting further away from the impetus to do it. If I had my druthers, I would love to teach a college level course graduate or postgraduate on education policy. Oh, I think you should. Arts education policy maybe as a particular subset of that, but I would love to teach on educational policy. I think people need to know how things like corn for porn happen. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, you got you got the university right there. I do. You know, I'm thinking about writing them about my interest in what I could offer now that we're beyond COVID. I don't know that I wanted to do it by uh, Zoom. I That didn't really interest me. I'd much rather be on campus with a group of people. You would be such an interesting college professor. I think your classes yeah. would be extremely popular and well attended. Well, I only want to do it as adjunct. You know, I don't want to get too deeply involved. And uh-huh. adjunct, of course, you you know, I don't need the money. And adjunct doesn't pay anything. But uh, it would be fulfilling to share some of the stories. Oh, yes. You know, stories, anecdotes of how things really do happen. <laughs> think stuff is really thought out and sometimes it's not. <laughs> or I, I think most people don't even realize how the appropriations process works or how Title I funding gets distributed to disadvantaged students around the country, for instance. I agree. Uh, you know, interestingly, yeah. Doug, I was actually a Title I math teacher for several years as oh, well. Okay. We would yeah. we would get money to spend that other teachers did not have. Correct. Correct. And one of the battles that I fought that pushing that rock up the hill was to get school districts to understand that they can use Title I money to teach the arts. They just don't. And it's because the people above the, the classroom level decide that that's not where the Title I money is going to go. Oh, I didn't know that. they can use higher art teachers. And to, yes, yes, absolutely. Wow. The arts are eligible. Again, it's a question of how do you change priorities mm-hmm. and how do you convince the people, school superintendents and school boards that, yes, if you taught more arts, kids achievement might go up overall Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well we can again that goes back to how do you pull out the evidence and you know the thing the studies from arts edge search and so on but yeah that's a battle that i fought for a long time 
the other one is Title II funds, which is professional development funds. You mentioned your professional development when you were a math teacher. Yes. That most a lot of that money in districts comes from the feds. Ah, uh, okay. They decide not to see. That's the thing. The department provides guidance, but it doesn't mm-hmm. have restrictions. We can provide guidance, which we did in Title One, that said you know the arts are eligible for Title One funding, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean anybody has to take them up on that. That's just guidance. Right, right. Now you were involved more with performing arts and music, correct? Not so much visual arts when when you were young. Oh uh, well, I was I was small C Catholic with the arts. I mean, I I supported all the arts, and I I was I proudly say that I was among some of the people at the national level who started championing um, media arts as a distinct discipline in the arts education uh, realm. And media arts is media literacy. That's important. Mm-hmm. People need, young people need to understand how media manipulates them. Mm-hmm. But the creative oh, yes. media arts, animation mm-hmm. and digital, digital arts, it, it's kind of always fallen under visual arts. But okay. I think it's now rich enough in terms of its curriculum and its skill sets to be able to have its own discipline area and there's been fits and starts of some folks trying to start a national media arts association media arts education association but i don't think it's really stuck okay they just don't have a large enough constituency that's organized at this point well when you were a child you were involved more with the performing arts and in music though yeah okay yeah my parents indulged me and i think i took accordion when i was in elementary school oh wow uh, i tried drums uh, okay. they i tried drums until they wouldn't buy me a drum set and then i switched to trumpet <laughs> <laughs> and then i played trumpet all through high school uh-huh. and in high school i also got enamored of being in the band so i took a bass guitar played bass guitar into i guess i played a little bit in college with some friends in a band that wasn't too good i was never really good at it and you have to you have to you have to be realistic when you're not really good at it. You need to be honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. My epiphany there was when I got involved in the acting and I thought, wow, I'm not, I don't feel passionate about this, you know? Mm-hmm. And you got to be passionate to memorize a, a full play's worth of lines, right? Sure. And I just thought, you know, I think it's really intriguing to try to figure out how to get more people to see this. I think that's fantastic <laughs> that, that you that you branched off in that way even all those years that i would do public speaking i would still get nervous Mm -hmm. before giving a speech and i found that honestly as i look back on it the better i i was better at it when i didn't go in with a script oh if i just had a sense from a framework of notes of what i wanted to say Mm -hmm. I, i was much better i would i would get sweaty palms and all that sort of stuff when I tried to read a formal speech. And, and I think we're finding that out, at least Rochelle and I with this, and, and Linda during your podcast, mm-hmm. that we're much better off without a whole lot of, um, mm-hmm. of, of, of pre-preparation. Because the, the older son, Doug JT, he tells me, well, he listens to a lot of podcasts. He said, you guys, should, right. you guys should be reading the person's bio and then talk to them. And I've found that better, I think, that we say, hey, Doug, tell us about yourself. I think it, it just lends itself to a conversation among friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I think so too, because I don't think you would have wanted to say about me that I was a failed artist who found their way into the arts industry. Well, the, we might get that in here, but you know, we can record <laughs> that afterwards. <laughs> I mean, but that's but that's but that's what happened with me, and so you can't you can't put flowers on that. I mean, that's that's what happened with me. I I didn't have the passion and the perseverance to try to make it as an artist. And I just thought, you know, I really love being behind the scenes. I totally I, I, understand you know, not that. Not that it was any major feat to produce community theater, but I, I produced a number of shows for the Adelphian Steve before I actually got that job at the Public Playhouse. And I loved it because you had you had to organize and you had to strategize and you had to get people to do stuff you know and that that and that's and and it's interesting as i look back on it now again i the trajectory all makes sense now but at the time i was just moving from one unexpected opportunity to another mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it was an amazing journey i i feel so so fortunate Done. So what has inspired you this week? What I'll say is I don't watch much television. We limit our television here, probably mainly because it's not a conscious decision. It's like we just, but Annie and I both stay extremely busy with things. I just did a couple of episodes of Beyond the Canvas. I happened to just take some time out to watch by myself Beyond the Canvas. Now, Beyond the Canvas, Beyond the Canvas rather, is I think it's a half hour format on PBS. Amna Navaz, who's the substitute anchor for PBS NewsHour for Judy Woodruff, hosts it. I think what inspired me was just the reconnection I was able to make through the show to artists and arts endeavors by the artists that they were profiling on a couple of episodes that I caught up with on Beyond the Canvas. And and that's that's Perk Linda's ears up. She's already written down Beyond the Canvas on her notes. I have. <laughs> she'll yeah. be she'll Omna, be by, uh, by, by the way, Omna's gonna uh, replace Judy Woodruff come this sometime I think January. I think Judy's gonna stay through the November midterms. If you know Judy Woodruff, she's a just a tremendous journalist and she's been anchoring the news hour since gosh, 20 20 years i think and omda is going to be taking it over that's interesting yeah beyond yeah. the canvas we'll have to uh we'll, we'll, we'll put, yeah, check it out yeah we'll, we'll put that link up for our uh, all of our millions of listeners sounds good yeah okay yeah well doug this has been just a real treat for me I so enjoy oh, well, that Steve you. invited me to come interview you. All right. Thanks, Thank Doug. you both, Linda and Steve. You Thank guys you. have a great evening. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. There are so many colors in the rainbow, so many colors in the morning sun, so many colors. So, Linda, what'd you think? Pretty good interview, huh? That was fantastic. What a life story he has, and he's he's such a champion for the arts education. Yes, I'm just imagining him at 22 years old. Now he was what play was he talking about that they were? Roses. Something roses. Well, just to let you know that I think my mother was the lead in that. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, how fun is yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, and I I kind of remember Doug, you know, doing the PR and everything. But who knew standing up to this artist and saying. 
well, can you do it with a little more? <laughs> Wasn't that unbelievable that he would say that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and now I want him to give it to us so we can add it into yes. into our podcast. But he has to go to a, a thrift store and, <laughs> and, and find a, a tape recorder. Right, right. I don't have one. I don't either. I, I just think it's amazing that he talked on the phone to Jack Albertson and then told Jack that, oh, it, it was okay. Can you do it again? <laughs> and how many times did they do it? Three times? I think he said three times. Oh, my gosh. It's so pretty crazy. It is crazy. And, of course, you know we're looking at it from today that we would have tried to Google Jack Albertson. Yes. and this, you know, He had to do the legwork. Yes. And I, I still maintain I would love to see the letter that he wrote that got the agents to call him back. <laughs> well, maybe we can get him to give us all that stuff. That'd be wonderful. So, Linda. Yes. It has been a nice week. We've had a lot of rain. Yes. Okay. Uh, what's inspired you this week? Well, guess what? I got to be substitute coordinator for the Get Smart with Art free art program I assisted Char Lang, and the, the art project was hummingbirds. So students made their own nest of hummingbird nests and birds and eggs from clay and natural materials. Then they painted the birds. The students were so creative. Their problem solving was astounding, and they have such great critical thinking skills. Just every time I get to help with the Get Smart with Art program is inspiring to me because we have such a great group of young artists in our community. Yeah, and I was I was by there and I saw you in there and everybody looked so happy. Uh -huh. And I'll talk about missed opportunities here because as you know, I've been involved recently with the National Arts and Humanities Month. Yes. And they're going to have an Instagram challenge of every day a different challenge. And oh, be listed. Yes. really? So October 1st, their okay. Instagram challenge is music. Okay, and they want to get people being happy, music and everything. After I left you with those kids, it started to rain. And I started to turn the car around and come back and say, Linda, can you get all the kids out and sing for me just a couple bars of singing in the rain and how cool that would have been out in front of the art gallery to have was it 10 or 20 we had 14 14 children and their instructors just to being silly in the rain because we don't see a lot of rain here let's face it and i could have taken that on my on my cell phone and entered it in their instagram challenge singing in the rain Oh, they would have loved that. They they would have been so excited for an excuse to go out and play in the rain. And dumb, dumb me, I went home, I sent you an email, and of course by <laughs> then it had stopped raining. Right. And by the time you read your email, it was done. So, missed opportunity for Steve. So, Steve will call next time? <laughs> yes, I should, have, no, I should have turned the car around and come back. Oh, okay. Because, see, you already told me you would have done it. And yes. how much fun would that have been? Oh, Absolutely fantastic. Oh, I, I could kick myself. It'll rain again. It will rain again, but we won't have those kids there in October 1st to be gone. Anyway, we'll try to figure out something for because I plan to 
enter in the or participate in the Instagram everyday challenge. So it's all through October. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll put a link up for that. And maybe all of our listeners can do that. That's really exciting. I, I'm looking forward to looking at that as well. Steve, what inspired you this week? Well, you know what inspired me? What? It, it inspired me to never miss an opportunity that I just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> sure, you've been waiting the entire episode to hear the end of the Harry Chapin song. Well, here it is. Enjoy it. Of course, time went by like it always does. They moved to another town. And the little boy went to another school. This is what he found. The teacher there was smiling. She said, painting should be fun. And there are so many colors in a flower, so let's use every one. But that little boy painted flowers in neat rows of green and red. And when the teacher asked him why, this is what he said. And he said, flowers are red and green leaves are green there's no need to see flowers any other way than the way they always have been seen but there still must be a way to have our children say there are so many colors in the rainbow so many colors in the morning sun so many colors in the flower That's the art box. Thank you, Doug Herbert. Thank you, Linda Harris. And we'll see you in two weeks. All right. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Linda. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the art box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, visit us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com.